What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Triaxip Pass, the short-form podcast that helps you learn more about your favorite development topics. This is your host, Christian Medina. Today, we're going to do something slightly different. We're still going to talk about an article, but this is a very interesting article written around kind of a Q&A thing where the title of the article is 35 Microservices Interview Questions You Most Likely Can't Answer. It's written by Alex from Fullstack.cafe, and it's available on Dev.2. Since we don't have time to go over all 35 questions in one show, I decided to pick a few as I was reading through the article especially those that are kind of like basic concept type things about not just microservices, but some of the component technologies that enable it. This topic is very interesting to me. Microservices, I've found, means different things to different people. So I think it's uh, good to have an article like this. It's actually quite detailed and interesting. And I hope you take a look at the article as well as the listen to the rest of the show. Let's get to it. Before getting into the questions, one of the first things that the article does is it reminds us that 36% of enterprises are currently using microservices and about 26% of them are studying how to implement them. This is based on some recent surveys run by Nginx. In my experience, that is about right. I'm actually surprised the numbers aren't higher. And so I think it's important not just to know for development of your career, but also to try to understand what people mean by microservices uh, when you're trying to put a design together for some application architecture. You'll find that while the term seems clear, the specifics of how to implement them vary greatly depending on the folks that you're talking to and their experiences in the past. Okay, so let's go through some of the questions. Now, obviously, 35 questions is a lot for the size of our time today. So I'll just pick out the ones that I think are the most important for everybody to understand ahead of time. Uh, You can, I'll leave you to do more study moving towards the future. The article is very well put together. Each question has a topic and difficulty that goes with it and a link to the source where you can get even more details about how they work. All right, so let's start with the basics and get into the more complicated things as we move along. First thing is, what is meant by continuous integration? In my experience, it's a development practice where each repository check-in in a particular branch or in all branches, depending on how you implement it, is verified by an automated build so that we can understand the health of the repository at any point in time. This allows us to detect problems early and react to them easily even rejecting a specific check-in or reverting it so that we can keep our code in a healthier state. Another topic that's discussed often when talking about microservices is the idea of containerization. Question three here talks about what does containerization actually mean. Containerization is a type of virtualization technology that shares operating system resources across different containers that are isolated from each other. Each one of these containers is able to run even its own kernel process, but without knowing about any of the other processes that are running outside of its own little box. 
this advantage of doing it this way different from, say, virtualization technologies that have existed for a couple decades now is the, that exact idea of sharing resources. Because in virtualization, you have to usually work with virtualized drivers. And not only that, you have to do these large context switches in order to change between one operating system and another. Virtualized drivers wind up providing some abstraction layer, which you still have a tiny abstraction layer in some cases under containerization, but for the most part, it's removed, making your processes run uh, at better performance with less complexity. The next important question is, what is the microservices architecture? It's a style of structuring applications in smaller autonomous services that are modeled usually around a business domain, but sometimes they're modeled around how your development team is structured. The intent is to provide design, build, and delivery or release independence for each one of those domains. Meaning, if I have a team working on the GUI for my application, that team should be free to release new versions of that GUI without requiring to release versions of the backend REST API that provides the business logic or the information that the GUI is presenting to your users. This gives your application and the entire development workflow a different type of agility in terms of being able to react to bugs without having to iterate on your entire system and regression test your entire system every time you need to do a release. Question 9 covers more of the features that come with microservices, like the decoupling, componentization, and business capabilities that we already talked about. Autonomy and continuous delivery are also part of it because the development teams can now work independently along with this decentralized governance where one team doesn't entirely depend on another in order to make a decision that affects the code that they're working on. This also distributes responsibility a bit better across the development functions, not just the specific pieces of code, but it also helps with um, the division of the end goals of each project or section or subsystem of your product. Now, we briefly mentioned continuous deployments. So let's talk about question seven, which is what is the difference between continuous integration, continuous delivery, and continuous deployment? All of these are commonly used terms and oftentimes they're used incorrectly. Now, continuous integration we defined earlier as validating or keeping track of the health of your code for every check-in, right? So if you go one step further, you can go into the continuous delivery point where you're saying, is my code able to be delivered to a customer? That means you test out a few more pieces to make sure that your code is ready to actually flip a switch when, whenever somebody clicks a button to make it available for somebody to use the new code. And the continuous deployment piece is a completely automated system where there is no button, button click to make that happen. That means that every code check-in that passes all of the tests and is able to be delivered, and we validate that as well, will automatically be deployed to your customers without anybody doing anything. It'll be no human intervention. Only a failed test will prevent your code from deploying to production. Okay, so let's talk about the concept of blue-green deployments. Questions five and six discuss that. 
and the differences with rolling deployment. So we'll get into that now. Uh, so a blue-green deployment is when you have two identical production environments. One is live, one is not, but they're completely identical in infrastructure, and code delivery, and deployment as well. So when it's time for you to deploy a change uh, or a new release, you do it on the side that's not live. So if your blue side is live and your green side is not, the next time that you go to deploy your code, you make it available on the green side. That way, if you have any problem during the deployment, you can roll it back, no questions asked. But then once you've brought it online and live, you can then monitor the green deployment as you transition your traffic from the blue side to the green side. As you're doing that, if everything works just fine, then you can take the blue side completely offline and upgrade it so that it sits there next to the live green side. Next time you go to do another deployment, you simply deploy to the blue side and switch traffic over from green to blue. The whole point of this is to reduce deployment risks and eliminate downtime. Essentially, you can transition traffic back and forth between these two environments without having to turn off your entire service or application. Now, along the same lines, a different variation on this is the idea of a rolling deployment, which is what question six uh, touches on. So in a rolling deployment, you have only one entire complete production environment instead of the two that we just talked about. But in that case, you start releasing the code or deploying the code to different subsystems of that environment over time. So if you have, say, five instances of a REST API handler, you can deploy your code into one of those instances while the other four stay on the older version. Doing so means you're slowly ramping up traffic on the new release. And if again, if you have a problem, you can simply take that one subsystem offline, revert to the older version, bring it back online, and the rest of your environment is still running. You can still do this as a zero deployment strategy if you plan it right, but you do have to think about the fact that your environment will have to handle two releases at the same time. That can be problematic if you're working with, say, database upgrades where one release uh, changes the, the structure of the database that the previous release can't handle. Now, we had an earlier episode where we talked about how to manage that a little bit better. So I encourage you to take a listen to that as well. Since we're on the release topic, another question to look at is number 26, which discusses canary releasing. Now, the idea is close to what we just said about rolling out a code change, but instead of rolling it out to your infrastructure, you're talking about rolling it out to customers, where let's say you have a thousand customers and you want to put out a new feature, you could enable it to say 2% of those customers to try it out first. This happens often in places that have a gigantic customer base or just a lot of traffic. Like for example, Netflix does this a lot. It lets you test out to see how the customer is adjusting to the changes that you put in place. Not just whether the changes are buggy or not, but are they usable uh, do they provide a good customer experience? A lot of times you can have measurable, you'll need to have measurable criteria in place for you to determine whether your canary release is working or not. And then when you have a good enough user base that seems to be enjoying the, the, new, the new behavior you added, 
um, you move the rest of the users onto it. There's different ways of doing this. Some folks do it just with infrastructure that's only, that use, does hashing to split the traffic based on, say, a customer ID when they authenticate. Other places use feature flags that they enable inside the user database that says, well, these users are going to be able to see this feature. And most of the time, all of that is an automated system that switches you between one place or another. Okay, so as expected, we ran out of time. We only had about 10 or 15 minutes to talk anyway. However, I do encourage you to go out and take a look at the rest of the questions that our author has answered here. It's not just about microservices and the architecture, but also the ecosystem around it and all of the different techniques or terminology that exists that enables it or different patterns that exist to apply it or interact with it. As a developer, this is one of the key things for you to keep in mind when you're making your next project, especially if it's a large service. Thanks for listening to the Dragset Pass podcast. If you liked it, feel free to subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Don't forget to visit tracksetpass.org for more articles about real-world software and stay informed by signing up to our mailing list. If you have an article that you'd like to see us cover, send us a tweet at tracksetpass. This is Christian Medina wishing you good times and good tinkering.